0: part of this ministry uh, where he starts telling his disciples well good Jesus starts telling his disciples that uh, they're going to Jerusalem where he's going to die uh, and be raised and they have no idea what he's talking about it just doesn't make any sense at all and so um, and it can't make any sense to them until after his death and resurrection so What I want to do is just very quickly look through this uh, uh, little sheet that I gave you and look first at uh, what the disciples were expecting and and what all Jews were expecting and then what Jesus was doing because there's sort of two different things. I would repeat as I did I think the last time I spoke. The Jews couldn't believe anything, the disciples of Jesus couldn't believe anything without there being scriptural authority for it. They're the way we are, and the way we really used to be when we learned all those passages, we memorized verses like I did uh, in the third grade and got stars uh, for doing so. Uh, They had to have scriptural authority. Granted, they had Jesus with them, they saw the miracles. Uh, Granted, they had the Holy Spirit uh, after Pentecost. But they also, you had to have scriptural authority or it simply wasn't true. The Bible was God's word. So, uh, Jesus tells them right after his resurrection, he says, you still don't get it? Let me explain it to you. So he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Remember those words in Luke 24? It's because they're still going, this is all astounding. Uh, We know you're the Messiah. What's going on? We don't get it. And so he tells them. Same thing happens in Acts 1, where he spends 40 days with them after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And during that 40 days, what's he doing? He's telling them, okay, now that you've seen what happened, let me explain how this works with the scriptures. All right, so I've given you some of the scriptures. The first one here from Isaiah 11 is what they and everybody were sort of expecting. That is, this uh, descendant of David. He's called here a stump of Jesse, a shoot. The uh, dynasty of David had been cut off. That tree had been you know, cut off at the ground. But what happens occasionally when you cut off the tree at the ground? It starts living again. You have this branch that starts up, and it'll, it'll grow up again if you get a time. That's what's going on here. So uh, all of these things here, i just underline a few. The spirit is going to be on the Messiah. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Verse 4, he will be righteous, he will be just. And this is going to bring in this wonderful time where wolves lie down with lambs, leopards with goats, calves and lions, uh, little kids hang out with vipers. You know, this, this beautiful time when creation itself is brought back to what it's supposed to be. Um, and so there will be uh, in verse 10 there will be a banner for the peoples the nations even will come all right this is what the jews expected this is what the disciples expected that the messiah would come and make everything okay now what i didn't notice uh point out here was verse uh four and a half there four be he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And as you read outside Isaiah, there's even more of that. He's going to destroy the nations, all those who have oppressed Israel. And, of course, that's what the disciples and the Jews had sort of uh, centered on. Jesus is going to uh, come and fight our enemies and set up the kingdom again. And it was true. It was true, but not like they thought thought about it. So, Jesus tells these guys, yes, you're right as far as that goes, but there's some of this you don't understand. One of it is, we're not going to destroy all the nations right now. We're going to give the nations every opportunity to come join us, and the destruction of the wicked is going to be a long time off when I return with the angels on the clouds. Uh, And hopefully by that time, the world has come in to the people of Israel. The world has joined the kingdom. Okay, so you go to Isaiah 52. He says, you can't just look at these passages that sound like the Messiah because they sound like, because there's more passages like that. He says, there's some others that have to be brought in here. He so the Old Testament says far more than these traditional passages in a few other passages. And so as he is moving toward Jerusalem, for well, what he knows will be the end He's got much more in mind than they do. And so I just want you to see very quickly what a few of these major passages are in case you haven't seen it. Because they never saw these passages as speaking of the Messiah. Because these passages seem to contradict what most of those passages say. All the prophets at some point Say, and in the end, God's going to forgive you and he's going to rebuild Israel and he's going to destroy all the wicked nations. Almost all the prophets said that. But you've got these places where you have someone who doesn't quite sound like that, this figure that God has sent. And the one that we know the best, and I think rightly so, I think it's probably the one that Jesus saw himself uh, imitating or fulfilling. Is in Isaiah fifty-two and fifty-three. There, this one we call. If we if we call the first one the Warrior Messiah, this one we might want to call. Although he was he's he's just he's righteous. He has the Spirit of God. He's not just a Warrior Messiah by any means. But this one, the Suffering Servant. So look down at verse three at the bottom of that sheet. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Turn it over. He has. He, he took up our sins and bore our suffering. He's punished by God. All right, now that's kind of interesting. It's God himself who, uh, who brought this on. He was stricken by God. And in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, though, brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. We've all gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died. Look at 8b. He was cut off from the land of the living. Uh, Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But then in verse 10. uh, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering sin. He will see his offspring, that is, he'll be raised raised from the dead. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. Down at the bottom there, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As far as we can tell, nobody had read this passage as referring to the Messiah before. Because
1: who did they think it was?
0: They didn't know. Oh, okay. Uh, sometimes they identified it with a historical figure who had suffered or whatever.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, isn't this fascinating? Yes. When we think Messiah, this is what we think about.
1: Yeah.
0: It doesn't say Messiah. It's okay. just a servant of yeah. the Lord. Some of them probably thought it was Israel. And it's easy to read it as the whole nation.
1: Well, it's kind of like how we see Revelation.
0: That, that people, Different
1: people have translated You know what happens. Yeah. In, in the, okay. yeah. What's up with the academics a, not sorry. acknowledging that this is... Uh, prophecy of Messiah
0: yeah we're not going there okay. uh, it's actually a very technical thing, okay. and it's a lot because this doesn't sound like the Messiah either I mean it's it's a lot of the same thing that the Jews had back then no not the Messiah sorry show me Messiah in there yeah. it doesn't say messiah uh, but Jesus says this is the role that I'm coming to fulfill quickly Zechariah 12. You have this figure who is uh, a pierced one. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Um, And then in Daniel 7, uh, Jesus' favorite term for himself, son of man. I had this vision at night. Before me, there was one who was like a son of man, like a human, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus used that term a lot said he would be coming with the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into the presence of God, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting. Dominion won't pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here you have this figure Jesus identifies with as one who's in the presence of God and one who will be sort of the ultimate judge. Uh, Fascinating, isn't it? So Jesus comes, and I'm just confident. He makes references in his life to all these passages, and then the church does as well. And so I don't know how much of what we have in the New Testament is the church looking deeper and into other passages, or how much all of it comes directly from Jesus. But the teaching seems to be that Jesus said, yes, I'm all of this." And so he conquers the world with love. And he sends out the armies to overpower the nations with love and service. And then, at the end, the evil forces that choose not to get in line will be destroyed. That's what justice demands. Uh, We're not going to live in an everlasting world in which evil continues. Uh, so there will be that destruction of people. Okay. Uh, we will let. Uh... What? Sure, you can ask a question. Does anyone? Does anyone have
2: questions for Mark before? I
0: oh, we can... got. Uh, yeah, we got time for questions. That's good. Do you yes, sir. Have some idea like in Zechariah uh, twelve. I. Um, they
1: will look on me, and then he changes from me to him. And There's... this is the Lord talking. Right. That's what I'm looking at. It's, yeah. It's,
0: it's it's difficult and it's very technical and nobody knows. Okay, what you have is Hebrew manuscripts that were written in the 9th and 10th centuries AD and so they've been copied by hand all that while. Uh, sometimes just mistakes made. Sometimes intentional changes made. Uh, and um, then we also have manuscripts only in the last Seventy years uh, that are also written in Hebrew, but they are from the second century B.C. Anybody know about where they came from? Dead Sea Scrolls. And they sometimes have different readings. They don't say exactly the same that um, the Hebrew text that the text from later on do. And so you get all kind of mess here, and I cannot tell you Okay, I know exactly what was going on here at all. I wrote my dissertation on this stuff, and I came out going, "I don't know, but I know how Jesus read it, and I know how the New Testament writers read it, and that's about as far as I could go. We kind of would like for them to read those as we do. You know, get it in its original context, understand it from in its literary context and uh, let them be uh, New Testament scholars or Old Testament scholars who read it like that, and that's not how it happened. But Jesus finds himself, clearly you have a figure here who uh, is pierced, and he's somehow from the house of David, but they're really sorry later on. There's mourning for him. And so I think you got to keep it with these, with these big kind of themes here, rather than you start trying to figure out, okay, exactly who did was Isaiah talking about and why would they have thought he was Messiah? I don't know. Uh, they didn't, obviously. Uh, and, and all of these others. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Is there any correlation between
2: Genesis where you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil and you have Christ on the cross? The taking of the
1: bread and the blood Christ brings back into a, a renewal of
0: that theme, except it's... You know, there there could well be. I You know, every time I read, actually every time I read somebody that's good, extreme... <laughs> I read the New Testament, I don't always see these uh, connections. But every time that I will read somebody that I haven't before and they will draw out connections that may very well have been in the writer's mind or may very well have... Um, been in God's mind as he inspired this, or may very well have just been seen by, you know, the writer at the time. But it's very hard to say, this is a connection. But it's kind of interesting when you say, this may be a connection. There's something interesting here. I'm making up all these answers as if I know. Do do y'all hear how authoritative I sound here? Isn't that great? In the land of the blind the one ad man is king. wait i just it's king i just called y'all blind didn't i i did not mean to do that uh we'll we'll get the queen you thank
1: you,
2: thank you. Don't, don't believe mark he has a lot more than he lets on um so george can't be with us today his um i think he said his parents uh, 60th wedding anniversary party which is pretty cool um, so he said he, he'd like to, he likes to send me these tricky questions, you know. So he sent a couple by text. He said, and they kind of overlap, he said uh, two related questions. One, why did God have to sacrifice himself to himself to create a loophole and a rule that he created? And he said, I saw that one on the internet a while back. <laughs> okay. And then number two, why couldn't God have just forgiven people? Does he need a sacrifice? So two good questions. Um, basically, uh, two questions related to the, the issue of atonement and why, or did God need a sacrifice? Um, did God create a rule that then he had to fulfill? Kind of all these questions that sometimes we end up wrestling with out of this material. So um, I, I want to think through some of those issues today. We'll kind of keep talking about these as we think we go deeper into questions about salvation and the way salvation works and how how much it kind of traverses, you might say, into sort of different categories of life. So I always want to tell my students at Lipscomb, we need to think about salvation in terms of Jesus' uh, whole life, um, his the fact that he became incarnate as the son of God, um, his ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension, all of that needs to stay connected as we think about how what we call the Christ event overcomes sin, but also evil and death. So there's a lot more to it, in other words, than just, you know, I, I had an idea, maybe a rudimentary idea growing up, but that the main thing was the crucifixion and the main issue was sin. And... Um, I, that's not all I was taught. I mean, I was taught more than that, but that was my idea that that was the main thing. And But the, the picture in Scripture is much bigger and richer and more dynamic than that, so I think it's important to keep all that in conversation. Okay, so um, one I want us to kind of keep one scene in mind today as we're talking through some of those, these issues, and it's the Passover meal scene. Um, we don't have to look at it together right now, but just kind of keep that in mind. And what we have there is, I mean, think about the context for Passover. That's important theologically. And then also um, what Jesus is telling his followers. So as Mark has set all this up for us really nicely, um, Jesus is understanding himself as a messianic figure, but also the suffering servant, the one who has to suffer for the kingdom before it can be inaugurated. Um, so there's this pattern here that there's suffering that must come before the kingdom. And then he he is anticipating. Rejoining his apostles, his disciples at the table, um, which I think we can understand is as the next kind of Eucharistic meal. Okay, so the the communion meal, um, which we now celebrate with with Christ every time we gather and we're anticipating this heavenly banquet when um, God's kingdom comes in full. And, you know, all things are set right. Finally, this this glorious day that we anticipate. Okay, so um, suffering is part of the deal. And, and death. And so how does he interpret his suffering and death is the question. Um, so he breaks the bread and distributes it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the cup, this is my blood poured out for you, for the renewal of the covenant. It's really important language there. So he's giving them lenses with which to interpret what's about to happen. Um, so we hear there, um, one, th- this is a gift. He's giving them this gift, his body and blood, uh, poured out for them, given for them. Um, And then, you know, we often hear that in terms of Jesus died for our sins. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but for me, that language is often confusing. Um, It it still can be. It it takes me back to this, you know, studying this again, oftentimes. Um, Mm -hmm. And the more I've studied it, the more I realize this is a remarkably complicated and, but also um, kind of marvelous story. So um, it's complicated because I don't think we understand the fullness of what it means to have been a Jew and what it meant to, for Israel to be anticipating um, some kind of atoning sacrifice, okay? So that's what I mean by that. It's also simple. Uh, the gospel is always, this, it's just this marvelous thing where it's, you can, you can dive deep into the depths of it for your whole life and study it. But the message is always one that we can all understand, which is God loved us so much that he went to the cross for us, and he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. So um, I think one thing that's helpful is to remember that, um, you know this is something actually uh, Josh has been preaching about, so it's helpful, it, it kind of works well with um, what we're thinking of in here. But for us to remember that um, blood, a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament is a ritual of purification. It's about bringing us before God. We need to remember it's not about the sacrifice itself becoming um, a a kind of carrier of sin. Uh, Remember the scapegoat. That's what Josh has talked about several times, I think. Um, The scapegoat was the one that was supposed to kind of bear the sin of the community, and it was sent away into the wilderness. It was not considered pure enough to be sacrificed as a mediator uh, between the people and God. So, um, and then this language of covenant. Um, John Mark mentions this, I think, in the reading that was assigned for this week. Which, by the way, I would say, if you if you haven't been able to keep up with the book, if you do have it, I would really highly recommend the reading for this segment. It was I, I found it really rich, and it made me again kind of want to go do a lot more study. Um, but one thing he mentions is he makes the connection to um, after Israel comes through the wilderness. they're you know. They do the exodus from Egypt, right? They come through the wilderness. They come, they're, they're following God's guidance into the promised land. And, and what happens, what, what do they associate when they hear the blood of the covenant? Does anyone remember what they would associate this with?
1: Yeah, the Passover lamb that
2: they... Right, so you've got that first, right? You have the, the blood of the Passover lamb, so that's really important. Um, Jesus is associating his sacrifice with that lamb but then also as you're coming into, um, as you're moving towards the promised land on the other side of the exodus, there's this moment where um, there's, a, there's a ritual kind of sacrifice and Moses says God is establishing this covenant with us here. And you kill all the, the animals that are considered pure for sacrifice. The blood is poured on the altar and then sprinkled on the people. And it's this mediating moment where God can know the people and then... Moses receives the Ten Commandments and this whole new way of being God being with Israel, dwelling with them in terms of the law, right? And Torah and all that we have there in terms of their sense of identity. Did he? Were it on the people or just on the priests? He sprink- It says he sprinkles the people with it, right? So this is where I would I would punt to a text scholar to tell me more. <laughs> Randall, Randall's done a lot of study on this. So um, you know, I don't know if there's anything y'all would want to say about that from what you've studied. No. So um, I think one thing to remember is the law for the Jews is a way of not only maintaining, but also demonstrating their membership in the ethnic people of God. Okay, it's a way of saying, I, I it was helpful for me when it was explained this way, that we have to think about, for them, the law is kind of like a means of grace. Um, it doesn't mean that they are Automatically pure, it means it's a way of becoming uh, pure enough to be in God's people, belonging to God's people. Um, so they have all these, you can see why the rituals mean so much to them. Um, observing, you know, kind of knowing the text means so much to them. The temple means so much to them, because it's a way of kind of demonstrating and maintaining that membership in the people of God. It's about salvation, essentially. Okay, so then we have. Um, what I do want us to look at and then hopefully leave time for some questions is let's look at Romans 7 and think about how Paul is talking about this relationship between the law and Jesus's sacrifice and the new covenant. Okay. Now there's this new covenant. We no longer have the Mosaic covenant. We're going to have this new way of relating to God. Okay. So, um, Romans 7, uh, let's, we can start in verse 6, but leading up to that, he's talking about how um, if, someone's marri- if a woman's married and uh, she remarries before her first husband is dead, that's against the law. But if her husband dies, then she's not you know, sinning or being against the law by remarrying. He's using that as an analogy to say, uh, so starting in verse 4, let's start there. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Through the body of Christ. In other words, you're no longer subject to this, right? It's no longer binding on you. Now you're given over to a new one. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, that's interesting language, I think, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. This is this transition, okay, from uh, from one covenant to the next, the covenant that's associated with Israel's law, the Mosaic covenant to the one associated with the spirit that's been poured out. This is familiar to all of us, I think. Okay, um, so then verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. That's important. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And then verse 14, I think, is actually important here too, so we'll stop there, but it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, This is complicated. This is a difficult set of passages, but what I want to draw out is there's this interesting piece here that it seems like, Um, What we have here is the law is not the problem. The picture is that sin is the problem. That's always been the problem. Uh, When Adam and Eve fell away from their vocation that they were given, they brought this brokenness into creation, into the rest of their children, and sin is always going to be the issue. God's covenant with Abraham is the solution to sin, and Jesus fulfills that covenant. I think that's such a beautiful thing for us to remember because it's easy for us to skip over that part of the covenant with Abraham as the solution. Okay? So it seems like there's even some sort of picture here of the law being given as a place to sort of kind of draw out mm-hmm. sin, sort of draws it out. Um, it, it sort of lures sin to this place where it could be condemned um, to the law and thereby to Israel and the world's representative who could fulfill it. So, someone has to fulfill, has to be the new Adam. Someone has to fulfill the law. No one could do it because of sin, except for the one who was God who became flesh and dwelt among us. So, what do we have here? We have this picture that says, only God's life can deal with the curse. Only God can really overcome the curse of sin and evil and death. Um, So, the law now has been fulfilled, um, and what happens as a result? forgiveness for the Jews, and welcome for the Gentiles. Um, So there's, again, this sort of, I think, complicated but beautiful way in which we need to understand what Paul is saying here about the law and about uh, its function is not something that we can just forget about. We have to understand this whole picture of what Israel was anticipating, how it understood (coughs) itself to realize what Jesus has fulfilled. Um, And so then we look at... um, Oh, and I just want to say that language about the flesh can be confusing for us, too. Um, it, I think it's just important to know if, in, in this context, as I understand it, when we s- hear something like the inclination of the flesh is to sin, they're, they're talking about the kind of base instincts that we have. Um, our, the kind of, um, you know, I think lizard brain I've heard it described that like goes against your kind of better instincts not to sin, right? Your kind of impulse there. Okay, so... Um, Paul has built this case in Romans that slavery to sin, slavery to sin, is what has prevented us from, prevents the Jews from fulfilling the just requirements of the law. And as all Jews know, the Gentiles are in sin, right? Um, and now there's been this fulfillment so that we, you know, the Jews can be forgiven, Gentiles can be welcomed. So then we have Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so God has done what the law could not do. Um, this just reiterates this point. God's very essence as love overwhelms suffering and sin and death. Um, God's life is what deals with the curse. Um, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin, um, that's that's saying here the son comes as a sin offering as this purifying sacrifice. And as such, he condemns sin in the flesh. Um, So we have to grapple with this complicated picture of Jesus as our representative substitute, okay? Um, He takes on the condemnation of sin by taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. So if, you know, one of my students recently raised the question, how are we supposed to understand these texts that say he became sin? Um, And I would like to hear Mark's answer to that, but I I said I think the best way to understand that is not that he actually became sin itself, but that he took on, uh, I I think this kind of helps us understand it, the likeness of sinful flesh, he came in the form of sinful flesh, and he took the weight of sin, he bore the weight of sin. Um, So he overcomes the dominance of sin, our enslavement to it. Remember the context of Passover here. There's liberation from what enslaves us. Uh, We're being set free from the powers that would seek to keep us uh, enslaved and in their grip. So um, God's reign is in conflict with the powers which enslave Israel and the whole world. And this is not just, it includes Roman oppression, but it includes all else that is opposed to God's good habitation, right? Um, Violence and injustice, captivity, sickness, poverty, poverty. All of the things which keep us from living into um, that original good uh, gifting that God gave us in Eden and the way God set things up there. Um, so there's this conflict between the way Jesus is living and um, the powers of the world, right? And th- that conflict is what leads to the cross. Um, and this this crucifixion is so we could think of it as the result of that conflict and. The powers of the world, kind of seeking to crush uh, the peacemakers, the ones that would uh, offer an alternative way. Um, but you know, they picked the wrong fight, because on the cross, sin is condemned. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned this last week, but um, I, f- I find it helpful. Some of the some of the oldest theologies unpacking the implications of the atonement say, um, Satan thought he was going to win by by bringing this one into death. And what he didn't realize is that he didn't have the right to take this one. And so he took what wasn't his. And, um, and then I also love this, um, that he couldn't have, there's you know, this other theologian who says, he couldn't have imagined that the one that he took was actually God, because he couldn't imagine that kind of humility. He couldn't imagine that the kind of grandeur that God has being willing to become, take the form of the suffering servant. And so, yeah.
1: I have a problem with that because every time, every time Jesus cast out a demon, they all knew who he was. So, wouldn't the devil know who he was? Yeah.
2: So I think, um, and again, i I'd like to hear Mark's mm-hmm. comments here. Um, the way I, the way these kind of thinkers unpack that is, they say they knew this was an important guy. Okay. They knew he was um, a representative from God. They knew that he was a a prophet, or perhaps even the Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. This one who, would get, who was going to fulfill these hopes of Israel. But they couldn't have imagined that God himself could come and live among... That
1: he would do it that way. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's, and that's a theory. That's a theory. I don't, I'm not saying it's like the one to go with. I no, think that's it's, a a, great, that's a, it's an interesting that, that's thing. It's something interesting to think a, about, at least, yeah. Um, so... The cross ends with the empty tomb, and this is this kind of crushing blow to death, right? We see um, in Christ's resurrection a type of our own resurrection, which is to come. Um, That's what's promised to us. He's the first fruits of our resurrection. We'll talk about that more, too. Um, But then um, there's also this final step, which is his enthronement. Um, At his ascension, we have the inauguration of Uh, the kingdom and new creation breaking in in some new way and that's sealed by the outpouring of the spirit which is that new covenant right and so the timing of that is also really important when we think about um, Pentecost which again we'll get there like how that functions in relation to Israel's calendar but the point here is that um, this whole event is the atoning or reconciling work of God not just the crucifixion And so I think it's really important to keep all of that in view, um, that Christ is the new human. He's the the real Adam, the true Adam, so to speak. Um, He is also fully God, fully human. Um, All of those things have to be held in concert with one another, and that he um, suffers on our behalf to fulfill um, the, the kind of role of the suffering servant who would suffer for the inauguration of the kingdom. So to George's question about um, did he have to, was there this whole kind of rule system set up that God then had to find a a loophole, Um, I think the picture is something more like God wants to be in relationship with us, in authentic relationship with us, and that means God gives us freedom to respond to him in love or to reject him, right? And when we choose to reject God and, you know, move into sin, we introduce brokenness to the creation, and the way to overcome that brokenness without just annihilating it, essentially, is um, the way of suffering love, the way that God takes of suffering love. Because otherwise, sure, God could snap his fingers and make everything otherwise, but that would be to do away with our free response, right? And so... I think the sacrifice isn't just, um, you know, God set these rules up and now God has to find a way around them. I think that there's something much deeper than that happening in terms of preserving our freedom to respond lovingly to God and to be in real authentic relationship with him. And um, we've got just a few minutes for questions. Mark, I don't know if you want to join me up here or (laughs) stay seated. But any questions you have at this point?
1: I don't see how that will change with humans, even after everything is created new. Won't we follow it up again if we have a choice? So how does that change?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's the theologians that answer this question because the New Testament doesn't say. And so they have to take this
2: and... Speculate. Yeah, we like to speculate. Um, So again... Who knows, right? Like yes. it's, But it seems like um, what we have is a picture. I think if we can remember, it seems like we were created with the potential for maturation mm-hmm. um, and development, right? Mm-hmm. So we have Adam and Eve is kind of childlike, meant to grow into God likeness. Mm-hmm. And then um, it seems like we have this picture in Revelation of this kind of full fruition of this whole event where God brings all things to uh, harmony with, you know, between heaven and earth, right? And so I think we could think of ourselves as having grown up in God to that point. Um, so what I tell my students, ask this question too, and one analogy I think that they have found useful, is I said maybe think of it like um, when you learn a discipline, like if you learn an instrument, or, uh, you know, whatever whatever thing you might feel like you have mastered some, some sense, you know, a sport or a... Um, but there comes a point where you're going to just keep getting stronger if you keep working at it and giving to it and you know, moving. You're not going to go back to the beginning where you're lo- likely to just drop it all together, mm-hmm. right? If you keep moving into it. So I think there's a sort of a picture of us having the potential to move further and further into God. Um, and right now, we have, to, we have to move past the point where we have the, the powers and principalities of darkness that are trying to do everything they can to keep us from doing that.
0: that's that's, I would say a a very huge thing is that we will not be surrounded by these principalities and powers and so even the serpent I think uh, in the garden is no longer with us and so another analogy might be as we're growing up none of us have yet hit real maturity but you're not acting like you were when you were a two year old Mm -hmm. just throwing a fit when you didn't get your way and you've seen some people who you think wow that's who I want to be like. It's one of the reasons we need these, uh, you know, the sort of models. And if you imagine, and then you have the Spirit within you as well. And so if you can imagine being in this wonderful community, God among us, Holy Spirit within us, uh, maturing, I, I think that's the best picture you can get. Of course, they were thinking about Israel becoming mature as a nation. It wasn't this, I personally am going to be perfect. Uh, I think it's, I'm going to be in the right group. And so I I think sometimes when we think about, well, I will be um, uh, completely unable to do anything that's wrong, I think that might be a little uh, higher reach for us. Yes, sir? Well, I'm just simply
1: trying to reconcile my mind. oppression by the Roman Empire. How do we get singing tied into all of that? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we went to Rome in 2019, and we visited the Vatican, and we visited Peter's, uh, he's buried in Rome, okay. uh, in the Vatican. And we, both around. Peter was decapitated, upside down on a cross. Most of Jesus' followers were oppressed and killed by the Roman Empire. So how do we correlate a political situation that Jesus responded to through God and, and sin? I'm trying to correlate like sin with a response to a political situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and also looking at the book. I, 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 I'm to that. I see it as a response to a, a <laughs> and we see Gandhi following in Jesus' pattern. We see Martin the King following the pattern of Jesus, a non-cooperative either through peaceful, peacefulness not through a violent thing that we see happening in the morning in the So how do you we put sin in, in that, that response?
0: Let me try to uh, simplify this because the simplified version is the only one I know. Um, the Romans were
1: men
0: the, the Romans were truly sinful, and they they had taken it uh, to a national level and just were brutal over everyone else. And the, the the sins that they were guilty of, and that the people were guilty of, there were in many ways, just atrocious. You always had good people in every society. But what Rome stood for was just evil, as Revelation would say. Right. Uh, but Jesus says, but Israel can't conquer Rome until uh, Israel has, you know, cleaned its own house and is ready to do that. And so until Israel becomes like God and loving all people and loving peace um, and loving justice, Israel cannot conquer Rome. And that's precisely what Israel wanted to do. Let's rise up against the Romans. In fact, that's what they did in but 66.
1: Yeah, they never could Rome. You know
0: exactly. I mean, if it showed it was the wrong never, way. And so Jesus say, says, follow my example. Right. And by sacrificing for people and loving people, we will win the battle, if you can imagine it.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And so that is the only solution And it was entirely political. That is the only solution for personal and for political victory, is the way of Jesus and the way of peace and the way of sacrifice instead of violence. I heard
1: Josh Graves say Jesus was not a He He was not a His mission was purely.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you you could look at it both ways. He did not get involved in being a politician. I'm wanting power to change everyone. That's right. As if you could legislate people being good, right. which some are trying to do today. I'm I'm for good. <laughs> right? uh, I'm not against it. But uh, that doesn't ever work. And then punish them when they're not good like you think they ought to be. All it does is continue this spiral into violence. I'm becoming a pacifist. I, I just can't believe it.
2: I think that's a great answer. I, the only other thing I was thinking is... Because that's a, I think that's a really nice way of summing it up. Is that um, Christianity outlasted the Roman Empire? You know? So there's something there, right?
0: And it beat the Roman Empire. Constantine says we're all going to be Christians, now. Mm-hmm. and it's the reason you're here. Although when they tied it to the government, it became a <laughs> All right, thanks.
2: Thanks, Shawn.